For most of us, regardless of what we might want to believe or claim to believe, the image that immediately comes to mind when we imagine God is that of a powerful white man who is for and with powerful white men. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Allen, your host of Holy Heretics. We've been gone a couple of weeks for spring break and are back with another episode in season three as we continue seeking the underside of spirituality, listening to the voices calling to us from the periphery or the margins of faith. And it's been an incredible journey so far, and I hope you've learned as much as I have this season as we've centered trans queer, female, Latinx, black, and other underrepresented people and stories. And by the way, if you're a little bit behind on the show, go back and listen to Dr. Christina Cleveland discuss the divine black feminine, or maybe even Roberto Shea Espinosa share what it means to carve out a new spirituality based on their emerging gender identity, or one of my favorite episodes from the season, our chat with Natalie Drew about how her gender transition literally saved her life. Now, one of the awkward things you realize at some point when you are in the deconstruction world of podcasting is that everyone seems to be having the same conversations with the same people, same big names, same celebrity progressives, same centered authors with the big book deal, having the same conversations across multiple platforms and multiple podcasts. And I get it. We've done it. It makes sense. It's a great way to build listeners. But sometimes what's good for you in the short run isn't necessarily good for you in the long run. And I've kind of just gotten bored with it because podcasting can turn into a pedestrian, competent, just sort of playbook kind of stuff. Same sequence, same people, same limited topics, same limited conversations. And I'm just not interested in doing that. Anymore. Anthony Bourdain once said, I detest competent workmanlike storytelling. And I agree. I want to create something beautiful, something different, something that sticks, something that matters, something scholarly and transformative that means something, that changes people, that makes a difference. Which is why I took the risk this year to center the marginalized to intentionally talk with people who've been silenced, forgotten, brushed aside, ignored. Because when we only listen to the voices in the center, even in the evangelical center, we become stagnant. We become spiritually impoverished by the status quo. If everyone believes it, if everyone already knows it, then odds are we've already had that conversation, and I don't want to do it again. And I'm amazed at how often conventional wisdom is just flat out wrong, even in the post-deconstruction or ex-evangelical community. But when we turn the tables, we get a chance to see something, hear something that may have been forgotten, something from the people on the underside of faith and spirituality, and it changes things. 
As Sue Monk Kidd wrote in her book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, this looking from the bottom up is the catalyst for a reversal of consciousness, not only for ourselves, but also for the most resistant among us. For when we stop perceiving, assuming, and theorizing from the top, the dominant view, and instead go to the bottom of the social pyramid and identify with those who are oppressed and disenfranchised, an entire new way of relating opens up. Until we look from the bottom up, we have seen nothing. So today we're going to look from the bottom up. We're going to flip the script and turn the spiritual world upside down, or maybe even right side up, by looking at God, our mother, and not God, the Father. But before we do, I want to make you aware of something new we've just created. It's an online class we are offering to our Patreon members titled Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. This six-part online course was created for post-evangelicals and seekers interested in reframing your understanding of and relationship with the Bible. And it draws on biblical scholars and their work like Walter Brueggemann, Pete Enns, Bart Ehrman, Marcus Borg, Elaine Pagels, John Dominic Crossan, and a host of others in an effort to de-weaponize the Bible. As theologian Marcus Borg wrote, People are leaving Christianity not because of what they don't know about the Bible. They are leaving Christianity because of what they do know. And that was the case for me. It's probably the case for you that the Bible was at the crux of why I deconstructed evangelicalism. It was the elevation of Scripture into the fourth God of the Trinity, the idea of inerrancy, and the way I was raised to read the Bible literally and historically it just all finally fell apart because once you actually read the Bible and take it seriously, almost all of those claims turn out to be lies. So if you are interested in figuring out just what the hell you're supposed to do with the Bible post-deconstruction, I think you'll enjoy this class. We start by studying how we got the Bible, uh, why some books made it and some didn't, why inerrancy is a modern invention, and how to ultimately appreciate the Bible for what it is, which is a marker to something bigger and better than itself. Now, you can access the course by becoming a Patreon member of Holy Heretics at any price point that fits your budget. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. And by the way, as a Patreon member, you not only gain access to this course— but gain access to additional premium content, as well as the opportunity to gain early access to every episode we create here on the show. Your partnership provides the necessary resources and the time to write and produce and publish this podcast. And I just want to say, for those of you who are already Patreon members, thank you so much for your support. We could not continue carving out this sacred space and having these sacred conversations without you. So thank you for your support and thank you for your partnership. Now, over the next two episodes, we're going to discuss what I believe is one of the most important spiritual conversations we've ever had on the show, and that's the divine feminine. What might it look like to see God in female form and through female language? And more importantly, how would that change you and how would that change the world? How would your relationship to the divine change if you were equipped to see the underside of God? This topic became even more interesting recently when the Church of England, which I'm a part of, sort of, as an Episcopalian, 
met to decide if they should drop the masculine gender pronouns and masculine gendered God from their liturgy, prayers, and worship. The question arose at a meeting at the church's general synod where the Reverend Joanna Stobart, the vicar of Ilminster in South Somerset, posed a question to leadership asking where things stand in the move to, quote, adopt more inclusive language of God. Now, for me, her question was only about 4,000 years overdue because Christians have recognized since ancient times that God isn't a guy. God is, in fact, neither male nor female in the way that we understand genders. But how many of us only grew up referring to God as father and never, never as mother? Our most remembered and sacred prayers even begin, Our Father, who art in heaven. Not our mother, our Father. And the idea of God as Father is scattered throughout the Bible, and Jesus even refers to God in male form as his Father. So this should cause us to ask just some basic questions. Why is God so overwhelmingly referred to as a he in institutional Christianity, as well as in Judaism, and frankly, as well as in Islam? Well, partly because the Bible was written in a patriarchal world by patriarchal men who couldn't conceive of a God not made in their own image. And then when Christianity got in bed with the Roman Empire in the 4th century, the male God became entrenched in Christian belief. A dominator imperial theology needed a dominator imperial God, and so Western Christianity formed a God that would unite the Roman Empire under a male-dominated, hierarchical worldview. In many ways, the structure and framework of the Roman Empire became the model for the structure and framework of the church. And imperial Christianity, which has basically been the norm in Western Christianity for about 1,600 years now, created this all-powerful alpha male God who takes no theological or political prisoners and early church fathers like St. Augustine, who is problematic on a number of levels, only further the patriarchal gaze by deeming men the crowning point of God's creation. For Augustine and for many other ancient theologians, unfortunately, men were made in the perfect image of God, while women were at best a distant second. As I mentioned earlier, we had Dr. Christina Cleveland on the show to discuss the divine black feminine. And in her book, The Black Madonna, she talks about how a male God has warped our understanding of divinity. Here's what she says. The prevalence of white male images of God easily lead us to conclude that God is definitely and exclusively white and male. And like many culture-shaping ideas, we don't even question the idea or how it shapes our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. For most of us, regardless of what we might want to believe or claim to believe, the image that immediately comes to mind when we imagine God is that of a powerful white man who is for and with powerful white men. It's a deceptive idea that flies under the radar, powerfully shaping us without our consent. Or as feminist theologian Mary Daly wrote, if God is male, the male is God. In other words, talking about the Christian God in exclusively masculine terms privileges men in society and underpins male dominance. God's social location is with men. 
and white men at that when we believe God is father and not also mother. Sister Joan Chittister, who has spent her life challenging the misogyny of the Catholic Church, writes in her book, Woman's Strength, It is precisely women's experience of God that this world lacks, a world that does not nurture its weakest, does not know God, the birthing mother, a world that does not preserve the planet, does not know God, the creator, a world that does not honor the spirit of compassion, does not know God, the spirit, God, the lawgiver, God, the judge, God, the omnipotent being have consumed Western spirituality and in the end shriveled its heart. I don't believe we will ever free ourselves from the evils of this culture until we reclaim God in female form. All of the pragmatism, the violence, social hierarchy, the need to dominate and control, the dualism, the us versus them mentality, the fear, the hoarding of resources, hating our neighbor, othering anyone who is different, all of that stems from the belief in a male God. And here's the sad thing. If you are a part of a predatory, patriarchal, militaristic, violent culture, then to behave in predatory, dominant, violent, patriarchal, and exploitative ways isn't deviant. It's just normal. And that is the world that a male God has created. All of this stems from a misunderstanding of God, from seeing only the world from the male perspective. And Sister Joan Chittister continues, I love this book, Women's Strength. I would encourage anyone out there to read it. She says, we have made women the litter bearers of a society where disadvantage clings to the bottom of the institutional ladder and men funnel to the top, where men are privileged and women are conscripted for the comfort of the human race. We define women as essential to the development of the home, but unnecessary to the development of society. We make them poor and render them powerless and shuttle them from man to man. We sell their bodies and question the value of their souls. We call them unique and say they have special natures, which we then ignore in their specialness. We decide that what is true of men is true of women and then say that women are not as smart as men, as strong as men, or as capable as men. We render half the human race invisible and call it natural. We tolerate war and massacre, mayhem and holocaust to right the wrongs that men say need a writing and then tell women to bear up and accept their fate in silence when the crime is against them. What's worse, we have applauded it all. The militarism, the profiteering, and the sexism in the name of patriotism capitalism, and even religion. We consider it a social problem, not a spiritual problem. We think it has something to do with the modern society and fail to imagine that it may be something wrong with the modern soul. We treat it as a state of mind rather than a state of heart. Clearly, there is something we are failing to see. And I think what we are failing to see is that at the very beginning of all things is God, our mother. And this reminds me of an ancient Celtic story known as the Fox Spirit Woman. And I want to read you a version of the story that we find in Brendan Ellis Williams' book, Seeds from the Wild Verge. Here's how it goes. 
There was once a hunter who lived by himself in a small hut, deep in the forest. Scarcely had he seen another human soul in many long years. His custom was to go out early each morning to hunt and trap, and not to return until dusk. One evening, as he made his way back through the forest pathways toward home, he noticed a very curious thing. A lively plume of smoke was rising from the chimney of his hut. He had not left a fire to burn in the fireplace before setting out, and he knew there were no other human people in the forest, indeed for a great many miles around it, so this was curious, to say the least. Slowly and cautiously, and with a hunter's silent skill, he made his way to the front door to investigate. He quietly pushed open the door and saw that there was indeed a bright fire burning in the hearth. He also saw that his dirty hunter's clothes from the previous days had been washed and hung neatly on a line near the hearth to dry. Furthermore, there was a nice warm meal prepared for him, set out on the little wooden table where he was accustomed to eat. But there was no one apart from himself to be seen. At length, though he was very puzzled by the circumstances, he resolved to accept and enjoy the mysterious gifts. Next morning he set out again at dawn, as was his custom, and upon returning that evening from the hunt, he discovered precisely the same things. A fire burning bright in the fireplace, a warm meal was set out, and there was no one apart from himself to be found. On the third day he decided he would attempt to discover the identity of the mysterious visitor. At dawn he set out as usual, but only pretending to enter the depths of the forest and after a short while loop back around to hide in some thick brush where he could watch the front of his hut and see any who might enter. He waited there many hours and spied nothing, but finally, late in the afternoon, he saw a fox coming trotting up to the hut, push the front door open with a paw, and enter. This was a strange thing, to be sure. Very slowly and with the hunter's silent skill, the hunter made his way to the front door of the house and quietly opened it. What he saw then was the most surprising thing yet. A tall, slender, and beautiful young woman with flowing red hair stood there at the hearth, tending to a fresh fire. Moreover, on a wooden peg where he sometimes hung a cloak or hat, there hung now a beautiful red fox pelt. After a few long moments of disbelief, the hunter finally gathered his courage and spoke. Are you the one who was responsible for the kindling of the fire these past days? For the washing of clothes and the cooking of meals? I am, replied the woman with gentle confidence. And I have come to be the mistress of this house. I have come to be your wife. The hunter was dismayed by this circumstance, but the woman was so beautiful and exuded such a contagious charm that he knowing a good thing when he saw it, said, Yes, I think that would be quite agreeable. And so it came to pass that they began to live as husband and wife, and they were quite happy. The fox woman proved to be an idyllic partner, and they fell quickly in love. It happened, however, that after some months, when the fox's mating season was upon them, that the fox pelt, which still hung on the peg near the front door, began to emit a very pungent odor, which the hunter found quite disagreeable. For fear of offending his new wife, he said nothing of it for some long time. But finally, 
the scent grew so intolerable to him that he could no longer bear it, and he confronted her about it as gently as he could. My dear, would it not be possible just for this season to store your beloved fox pelt outside the hut, perhaps in a carefully crafted wooden box, to keep it safe? Though somewhat irritated by the comment, his wife replied with as much compassion as she could muster. No, my dear. I'm sorry, but it would not be possible for me to be apart from the pelt. It is only for a short season that it may displease you, and I trust that in time you will adopt to it, or perhaps even learn to love it as part of my nature. Well, this was not the answer that the hunter wished to hear. He suppressed his frustration as much as he could, but by the day he grew more and more irritable, more and more angry. It was clear that a rift was growing between them. He began to sleep in a small storage room at the back of the hut to get as far away as he could from the scent of the pelt. Finally, one evening, he could tolerate it no longer and burst out in anger at his wife. For the love of all that is sacred, could you not do this one simple thing for me? Can you now see how I am suffering? If you truly love me, you will take this pelt from my house. Devastated, the fox woman, his beloved wife, went silently toward the door where the pelt was hanging. She said nothing more to him, but with a look of sorrow that stung the depths of his soul, she took down the pelt from its hook, draped it over her shoulders, returned once more to the form of a fox, pushed open the door with her paw, and departed, never to be seen or heard from again. Now, this story is a fascinating one, one that illuminates the concept of the banishment and the exile of the feminine, the taking away of feminine virtues, feminine beliefs, feminine desires, feminine things from life. And what we are left with is aloneness. We are left with pragmatism. We are left with only the male. And it is a detriment not only to ourselves, our spirituality, and our culture in general. But Celtic spiritual director Caitlin Matthews says, a whole new way of living and valuing things comes into focus when we consider the mother, the divine feminine, the hidden side of nature, the side that intuits rather than reasons, the part that views things from the inside out rather than from the outside in. It means allowing the side of our society and individuality that has been recessive to take its rightful place. So this notion of the great mother or God as mother and not just father really is in many ways our most primordial, pervasive, and fruitful image of reality. It even dates back to some of these ancient stories from Celtic indigenous populations. The great mother always appears with extraordinary power, with wisdom, with deep tenderness, and even a, a depth of mystery. And when we look at cultures and religions from around the world, the divine feminine is present everywhere. For about 25,000 years, possibly even longer, the image of the great mother presided over distant eras. She was seen and known in the Paleolithic and the Neolithic and the great civilizations of the Bronze Age 
and she was known as God, our mother. The earliest images of the great mother known to us are the small and in some cases exquisite figurines of a goddess carved from stone and bone and ivory about 25,000 years ago. Through the goddess traditions around the world, she guides, she terrifies, protects, chastens, heals, liberates, and even illuminates. And whether we are looking at Neolithic Europe or India and China or to any people that has managed to retain its ancient traditions like the Kogai Indians of Colombia, what we find is the divine imaged as a mother, that the divine is imaged as the womb and the origin of all things. She is the bringer of life and death. She holds within her being the three dimensions of earth, sky, and the underworld. And Barring, author of The Divine Feminine, writes, The word feminine stands for the soul and the unseen cosmic web of life that connects each of us to all others and to the life of the planet and the greater life of the cosmos. In some, the word feminine stands for a totally different perspective on life. It stands for a new planetary consciousness and the arduous creation of a new kind of civilization. The feminine aspect of divinity also has deep roots in Judaism and Christianity. In fact, here at the Sophia Society, we purposely named our little project after the Greek word for wisdom. And in a way, you could argue that wisdom is feminine and facts or apologetics or just right answers are masculine. One is pragmatic and set. The other is nuanced, dynamic, mature, inclusive. And it's no wonder, honestly, that dominator evangelicalism loves the white male God because he leaves no room for deep interior wisdom. But a careful reading of the biblical text suggests that wisdom was with God from the beginning, that wisdom has a divine female nature. And we meet Sophia in Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? You who are simple gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. The writer goes on to say that God brought forth wisdom as the first of God's creative works. Rabbi Rami Shapiro is a Jewish contemplative and interfaith teacher, well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, and he describes how the divine feminine has been present all along as wisdom in the text, God's essential partner in the creation of the cosmos. He writes, It is no small thing to note that wisdom is feminine. The original language of the text, both Hebrew and Greek, make this clear. Hebrew chokmah and Greek sophia are both feminine nouns. The authors of the wisdom books like Proverbs, Wisdom, Ecclesiastes, etc., took this gender specificity seriously and envisioned wisdom as mother, God's consort and the bride, the divine feminine through which the masculine God fashioned all creation. Chokmah was not simply the first of God's creations. She was the means through which all the others came forth. And this is what it means to be the master builder. Chokmah is both creative and creative. She is the ordering principle of creation. She embraces one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well, we read in the wisdom of Solomon. 
To know her is to know the way of all things, and to act in accord with it is what it means to be wise. And this is how our mother wisdom works. She doesn't change anything. She illuminates everything. Wisdom is right seeing. Hokmah pervades and penetrates all things. She is the ordering principle of the universe. What you see when you see her is analogous to seeing the grain in wood, the current of wind and oceans, and the laws of nature, both the macrocosmic and the microcosmic. She is the way things are. She, or wisdom, is the way God is manifested in the world. To know wisdom, to know her, is to know God as well. And for many Christians and Jews alike, not only is wisdom considered feminine, but even the Holy Spirit is known in female language and female images. Now, I attend the Episcopal Church here in Colorado Springs, and every Sunday we recite the Apostles' Creed. And I always refer to the Holy Spirit with female pronouns, and it sounds a little bit like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, she is worshipped and glorified. She has spoken through the prophets. And it's interesting because the folks in front of me almost always turn and look at me as if I've messed up my lines. But I really haven't. And why? Why do I refer to the Holy Spirit in female form? Because the Hebrew word for spirit is ruha, and the Aramaic is Shekinah, and they are both female words and imply a feminine divine presence. Aramaic is, as we probably know, an ancient Hebrew language that was spoken by Jesus. Shekinah appears in sacred texts as the Holy Spirit, spoken of in the Talmud as the manifestation of God in physical plane. And Shekinah was depicted as arguing for compassion toward humans. Originally, the Shekinah were female entities who embodied wisdom. And here's wisdom again, chokmah in Hebrew, but more widely known in Greek as Sophia, and it's in female form. Now, some biblical scholars even point toward an early worship of the divine goddess, we may not have known this. This was new to me when I was doing some research for this episode, but originally Yahweh was spoken of as having a wife named Asherah. I had never heard this before, but there was a common blessing around the time of Solomon that said, blessed be thy name by Yahweh and his Asherah. As Raphael Patay said in the Hebrew goddess, of the 370 years during which Solomon's temple stood in Jerusalem, for no less than 236 years, the statue of Asherah was present in the temple, and her worship, the divine feminine Asherah, was part of the legitimate religion. Now, the problem is that over the years, a patriarchal tradition has ignored the motherhood of God, as well as our own responsibility to develop the mother in ourselves, to nurture one another, to nurture the planet as protectors and guardians. God the mother creates, God the mother nurtures, God the mother loves us like a mother loves her child. God the father, God the father is a distant judge and lawgiver, but God the mother is close to us. She envelops us, she births us, sustains us, cares for us. Ancient Christian mystic Hildegard of Bingen writes, God hugs you. You are encircled by the arms of the mystery of God. 
Now, this topic is so broad that I think we should continue it next week by talking a little bit more about the biblical images of the divine feminine, as well as the ways in which the Christian tradition has seen God in female form throughout the centuries. But as we go, I hope this conversation has helped you to see God in a new yet ancient way to know God, our divine mother. And as Christian mystic Michteld of Magdeburg wrote, God is not only fatherly, God is also mother who lifts her child from the ground to her knee. I, God, I am your playmate. I will lead the child in you in wonderful ways, for I have chosen you. May this view of God as mother awaken your inner child, that part of you that is desperate to be loved, cherished, hugged, nurtured, cared for in a hurting world. Amen. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.